0: On an unassuming block of North Charles Street, in a building with a deceptively moderate glass front, live the offices of the Baltimore Afro American Newspaper. The Afro, as it's affectionately called, is the oldest family-owned black newspaper in the country, founded in 1892, just 36 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. Since then, it's served as one of Black America's foremost reporting sources, covering everything from Southern lynchings, the Scottsboro Boys' trial, and World War II, to some of the earliest legal Black weddings and college graduations. It's no small thing to be invited past the cozy lobby and into the hallows beyond it. There's a scent of history inside. Old newsprint, aging paint. I was walking the halls that scores of bygone black reporters rushed through, filing stories on segregation, war, or the election of Baltimore City's first black mayor. After one day at the Afro, I knew for certain what some have only speculated. Time travel exists, and the Afro building is the time machine. For WEAA 88.9 FM, I'm Stacia Brown, and this is Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City, Episode 2, Eddie Afro. The first thing you need to know is that the Afro is old, really old. It's the result of an 1892 merger between three black Sunday school newsletters that published community news, which, given the staunch segregation of the press, would not have otherwise been disseminated. John H. Murphy Sr. assumed ownership of the publication, renaming it the Afro-American Ledger. Remember that surname, Murphy. You'll hear it often over the next 25 minutes. You see, astoundingly, in 2016, the Murphy family still owns the Afro.
1: I think one thing, we have certainly helped to keep the white press a little more honest. Uh, Of course, we have brought news to black people that they'd never have gotten had there not been a black press.
0: That's the late John H. Murphy III, grandson of John H. Murphy Sr. in a 1971 interview for Columbia University's Black Journalists Oral History Project. He was responding to the question, what effect do you feel the Afro has had on the field of journalism? Mr. Murphy III started working for the family business after graduating from Temple in 1937. By 1967, he'd become president of the company.
2: One of the uh, advantages of the Afro is that we had this family and uh, the, the sons came in uh, and worked, and uh, the next generation came in. I, took part, I, I was the head of the business department, my brother George was in the editorial department. My brother Jim was in the circulation department.
0: That was Howard Murphy, also a grandson of John H. Murphy Sr., in a 1972 interview with Columbia University's Black Journalist Oral History Project. Back then, he served as the AFRO's comptroller. My
2: earliest memory would be running around the uh, production department, um, spending a lot of time around the printing press, talking with all different types of people who were working there.
0: And this is Mr. Jake Oliver, great-great-grandson of John H. Murphy, Sr., and current chairman and editor-in-chief of the AFRO.
2: Back in those days, the process of creating uh, the newspaper was an elaborate, um, intent, employee-intensive process. Each page had to be created individually, uh, and the people who were creating those pages had to develop the ability to read upside down and backwards, which was an amazement to me. It, it, it was a thrill for just about any kid to walk through the Afro in those days, because it was a big operation.
0: We met with Mr. Oliver in person in the boardroom of the legendary newspaper's offices. There were portraits on the walls all around us, oil paintings of famed Baltimoreans like Thurgood Marshall and a few of Mr. Oliver's ancestors, including Carl Murphy, John Sr.'s son, who ran the Afro from the time of his father's death in 1922 till his own death in 1967. Mr. Oliver's knowledge of the newspaper archives is encyclopedic. Throughout the hour we spent talking Afro history with him, he cited not only the years and headlines of several articles, but often their placement on the page.
2: Uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, we, we ran an article uh, that talked about in 1912, when he ran for president, he realized that as a Democrat, um, He really didn't have too much of a chance in beating a Republican who were all-powerful. And for the first time, the black vote meant something. So how did he go after it? He sent the bishop of the AME Church into the black community to convince us that Woodrow Wilson will help the race progress. He's a good man. We endorsed him. Three months later, after he got inaugurated, he fired every black person in the federal government who had any meaningful job and never hired anyone back.
0: More than once, Mr. Oliver told us, his searches through the newspaper's archives for national news like Wilson's election resulted in stumbling across coverage of his own family. For instance, Mr. Oliver found out that President Wilson eventually did need to hire someone black an ambassador to some of the wealthier countries in Africa.
2: I, I noticed down the bottom of the page that it said that this fellow um, had been offered the job of ambassador to Liberia. And he rejected it and had a picture of him. I said, who is this dude? It's a black guy. So I, I looked at him and I said, hmm, looks familiar. And then I saw his name is my grandfather, John Burdett Oliver, (laughs) who's a doctor in Indiana. There's so many surprises in history. Uh, You never can tell what you're gonna come across, whose picture you're gonna come across.
0: Aside from having grown up with a front row seat to the making of one of the country's oldest black newspapers, he's also spent much of his adult life sifting through the paper's archives. After our interview, We had an opportunity to do the same. The archives are housed right down the hall from where we conducted our interview. Bound editions of the Afro dating back to the turn of the 20th century are stacked floor to ceiling in the archives. Inspired by Mr. Oliver's recollections of memorable articles, I poured over a few dozen old editions of the paper myself. It quickly became clear that the Afro reported news that the white newspapers of the time probably wouldn't have touched.
3: A cloak of secrecy has been thrown around 22-year-old Clifton Sessions after his daring rescue from a suicidal perch on the 12th story ledge of a downtown hotel. The fair-skinned young man has worked for three years as an elevator operator at the hotel, which ordinarily employs only white persons for that job. Police said he had been under a mental strain because of this situation.
0: Perhaps because of its church roots, the AFRO's articles, particularly before the civil rights movement, often took on a rousing, preachy, editorial tone, with many editions urging readers to take direct action.
3: Pratt Library trustees announced recently that colored librarians will be hired at branches of the Enoch Pratt Library when vacancies occur, but that no colored would be admitted to the training class. Is the board really serious when it comes to this announcement? Outside of a few janitors and scrub women, none is colored. The Pratt Library has thrown us a bone, Will the NAACP be satisfied with it? We hope it won't be, but we'll perfect its case and file its suit.
0: The Afro functioned as a kind of confessional, its readers submitting letters confiding their frustration with segregation.
1: Two white soldiers passed me the other night, discussing the best way to entertain themselves for the evening. They considered bowling, swimming, skating, and finally deciding on a shooting gallery and novelty game house. It made me realize how little Baltimore has to offer colored soldiers in the form of recreation.
0: The Afro's war correspondents abandoned straight news reporting to admit to readers their shock at the atrocities they witnessed. The
1: closer we got to the place, the more peculiar the air smelled. It was like burning brown sugar with a low, sour stench of unwashed bodies. The woods adjoining the enclosure held more bodies of mangled, charred flesh. Everybody was so emaciated that arms and legs looked like water pipes or chair legs. They were of all ages, old men and teenage boys. Many bodies were naked.
0: It's worth noting that the Afro sent six of its own reporters overseas to cover various events of World War II. They did so at no small expense, but they had no choice.
1: I couldn't count them individually, but there must certainly have been 500 of them. Official reports say 200. I disagree there were at least 10 piles of 50 corpses in each. A man of 60 with tears in his eyes and a boy of 15 who didn't have enough water in his body to cry if he tried, came and kissed my hand.
0: Black newspapers didn't have access to news wires like the Associated Press. And though there were some colored news wires established to address that, the Afro wanted to provide its readers, many of whom had relatives fighting overseas, with firsthand accounts of what was happening on the ground.
1: I was the first correspondent in the terror camp on my honor. It was one of the most inhumane attempts at racist extermination any people ever suffered.
0: It's also worth noting that one of the correspondents the Afro sent to Europe was a woman, the very first black woman war correspondent in the country. Her first name, Elizabeth. Her maiden name, you guessed it, Murphy. I asked Mr. Oliver if there was one story the Afro reported during his lifetime that was particularly memorable to him.
2: In my life, um, the Emmett Till news story was probably the most impactful to me and I think to everyone in my generation because they posted uh, a picture of his body on that front page I think I was in the fourth grade. I just stood there and looked at it for, I think, hours. Because it took me a while to figure out that that's a person and what they did to his head and everything else. I'd never seen any disfigurement like that before. And then it it started to sink in that that was caused by hate. and. For the first time, I began to understand the importance of why daddy was spending so much time at the Afro, when I couldn't understand why is it called Afro? Why is that necessary? When I saw that picture, it brought everything home. I said, my God, there's so much hate out there just personified by what they did to that boy. That uh, I think that changed an entire generation of kids.
0: After World War II and the gains of the Civil Rights Movement, Big changes were on the horizon for the Afro. Up next, we'll talk about the next phase in the newspapers and the city's development. You've been listening to Baltimore, the rise of Charm City. On your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community.
1: I don't foresee it in the, I say, in the next hundred years. Beyond that, what's going to happen? Maybe hundred years from now, newspapers will be using all different types of, of distribution, which won't even be on newsprint. But that's a hundred years from now.
0: That's John H. Murphy III again rightly predicting a digital journalism revolution in his 1971 interview with Columbia University's Black Journalists' Oral History Project. Little did he know, that would happen a lot sooner than he surmised. Computers would revolutionize desktop publishing only one decade later, and within 25 years, the internet would begin to drastically shift the way we acquire news. Mr. Oliver, current chairman and editor-in-chief of the AFRO, was an early adopter of online news presentation.
2: Among the black press, we always prided ourselves as being the first. We were the first to have a website. We had our first website in 1994. And from that point on... We started to experiment with learning how to post, learning how to change and accommodate the way people were pulling stories off of the website and reading it.
0: Since 2003, the Afro has been working with Google to digitize its print editions of the paper.
2: We have maybe accomplished about three-fifths of the old newspapers have been converted to digital And we put it up on our website, and it is a continuous source of amazement.
0: Even with its focus on keeping up with the times, some of the Afro's most loyal readers are its oldest. Luddites, who as subscribers still receive print editions of the paper when it's published every Thursday, or who go to their local supermarkets to pick it up fresh from the newsstand. The Afro has always been innovative, but in many ways it represents the nostalgia of bygone times in Black Baltimore, too. Consider Mr. Clarence Massey, Circulation Manager of the AFRO. As an adult, he's worked for the AFRO for 14 years. But his connection to the paper dates back much further.
4: Um, as a kid, I used to sell papers on the buses and in the neighborhoods. Back in the uh, 70s, early 60s, late 60s, we used to jump on the bus and we used to get on the bus for free And until we ran out of papers and we had to get off. But we used to get all over the city with that.
0: For decades, at the height of its circulation, when the Afro had editions in as many as 12 markets other than Baltimore, including D.C., Richmond, and Philadelphia, Paperboys and Papergirls were essential members of the news team and valued members of the communities where they delivered. They'd call out a familiar refrain as they approached, just as they were about to toss papers into yards and onto stoops. We asked Mr. Massey to say it for us. <laughs> I rather
4: not say it. Eddie Afro.
0: Fun fact The Afro boasts one of the most impressive rosters of former paperboys imaginable. Former Congressman Kwaisi Infume, current Congressman Elijah Cummings, and attorney Billy Murphy, a longtime Baltimore luminary who you may know as the late Freddie Gray's family lawyer. Mr. Massey credits his job as a paperboy with teaching him a sense of responsibility and maturity.
4: When I got up in the morning, I went out and served Afros, and then I went to school. And I always used that change for my lunch money and stuff like that. And my parents did all the the buying of my clothes, but after I started selling papers, it was over.
0: Sadly, the heyday of the Baltimore City Paperboy drew to a close not long after Mr. Massey's tenure. In 1971, Afro Comptroller Howard Murphy spoke to the reasons for the change.
2: Newsboys are hard. Not only the Afro, but a lot of daily papers have difficulty keeping newsboys, you know. There are lots of reasons. Uh, Parents don't want the boys out. and, And big older boys will rob the boys of their money and things like that.
0: That was the end of a safe and wholesome era. By the end of the 1980s, after drugs became a Baltimore City stronghold, and the use of paperboys was, by and large, a thing of the past, some young black men were back out on the street working. In East Baltimore, paperboy-aged youngsters were finding employment as drug runners for Maurice Peanut King, a notorious heroin dealer whose eventual takedown the Afro covered extensively beginning in 1982. These days, Mr. Massey is one of few remaining print paper deliverers for the Afro. He says he no longer delivers to private residences, but instead mainly to grocery stores and other businesses. I can attest to that. Our interview with him came after a bit of a wild goose chase that took us to the Druid Hill Y, where an old-school Afro vending coin box sits in the lobby, back to the Afro offices where one such box is stationed on the sidewalk outside, and right back to WEAA's offices. As it turns out, one of the stops on his route is right inside our building at Morgan State University's School of Global Journalism and Communication. We asked him how much longer he thought physical newspaper delivery would exist.
4: It ain't gonna be long. I mean, everybody's gone to the internet now, and a lot of our folks are dying off, you know, the elderly. That's who's supporting us, the elderly. I mean, they are, if we didn't have them, where would we be? Plus the history, you know. So we're just trying to instill values with the kids, letting them know that, hey, we've been around a while, 122 years we've been around, you know, and we're still here.
0: Despite the potential expiration date on physical paper delivery, Mr. Massey says the AFRO's strong generational presence in Baltimore City's communities will sustain it.
4: People still remember me from way back when, when I was a kid, and now my daughter's working at the AFRO, so it's passing on, so hopefully her kids will be there, you know.
3: My name is Sharika Massey-Ortiz. I'm from the west side, and I work as an assistant for the archives. My dad was talking about how You can learn history by, you know, reading the newspaper. So I just wanted to learn about the history.
0: The archives, both physical and digital, are one of the many ways the Afro plans to draw the interest of a younger audience. Families like the Masseys, with a multi-generational investment in the circulation of and access to the Afro, embody the success of that effort. Sherika is the mother of a three-year-old and an almost two-year-old. She's already brought them to the Afro building and says she'll continue to bring them as they get older. Up next, we'll talk to current editors and reporters for the Afro about their plans to take the paper into the next phase of its future. You've been listening to Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City, on WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. We've taken you into the archives of the Baltimore Afro-American newspaper, and you've heard from generations of the Murphy family who still owns it. I told you at the top of the show that the Afro building is a time machine. It's true. You enter it and lose yourself in the past. In that past, nearly 100 reporters, editors, photographers, and other staff members bustled from floor to floor. But things are much different now. On the days that we visited the Afro, there were fewer than 20 staff members, none of whom were reporters. There's a good reason for that. These days, the majority of the Afro staff members are freelancers. They work remotely, leaving the once electric, collaborative buzz of the newsroom eerily quiet.
5: My name is Lisa snowden mccray and I'm a journalist and freelance writer for the Afro. I've been working for the Afro for about a year and a half. Because we're all freelance, other than that, it's hard to really see anybody. In the first few weeks that I was writing for them, Mr. Oliver decided he wanted to have a meeting with all the freelancers. So, like, even the ones, the people from D.C. came down and we all met at the Baltimore office. And it was just all of us sitting around this table. And it's just all these black people who are writers and photographers. And that was kind of cool. It feels really good to work for the Afro and kind of be part of the legacy of all the people since, like, the 1800s.
0: Senior Afro contributor and weekly columnist Sean Yose remembers the days when meetings like that were commonplace. He started at the Afro in 1989, when his offices were still somewhat lively.
6: When I first came to the Afro, we had four full-time reporters. We had a sports department. We had full-time photographers. It was more of an operation. And now we don't have any full-time reporters.
0: I asked Sean if in the 20-plus years he's worked for the Afro, he's ever considered leaving for a mainstream or predominantly white press, where resources might be less limited.
6: I've been asked, but I have never really seriously considered it. Not really.
0: I ask this because black publications like the Afro, which historically were the only places for black writers to seek employment, have increasingly become training grounds for newer black reporters in the decades following the civil rights movement. Pit stops for many on their way to bigger, better-funded newsrooms. Reporters like Sean, whose loyalties lie with the black press career long, are fewer and farther between.
6: It's 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 tough. It is tough. It is uh, the the consensus that I've heard from most people working for the mainstream press, especially when they come from an advocacy journalist background like the Afro, is that it's not easy because it's it's a totally different, it's just a totally different vibe. There's a lot of pressure put on you. The Afro was like family to me. You go work in a mainstream newspaper, it's probably not gonna be the same. There are different pressures put on reporters working for a newspaper that it has a more of a corporate bottom line.
0: Sean remembers working with one of the Afro's most iconic reporters, an experience that could not have been replicated at any other press.
6: I worked with Sam Lacey. He was the dean of uh, black sports writers. He is a member of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, he, along with Wendell Smith, uh, are responsible for Breaking Jackie Robinson into Major League Baseball and breaking the color barrier. I wrote a story once. Um, it was a now Lafayette Courts. Um, it doesn't exist anymore. It was a low-income housing high-rise, and I remember I wrote this lead, and uh, that talked about the conditions at Lafayette Courts. And Mr. Lacy came to me and says, you that was a that was a very good lead you wrote," and I almost passed out, like because this is, I mean. I mean, he was literally a living legend for him to uh, be gracious enough to de- notice my work and then to uh, compliment me. It was, that let me know, well, I, I mean, you know, I was a very young cat and I, I let me know that maybe I was doing something right.
0: Mentorship is still important to all aspiring journalists and even today, The Afro remains committed to it.
3: I actually got involved with The Afro after, um, an administrator here sent out a mass email saying that they were hiring for an internship.
0: Akira Kyles is a student at Morgan State University majoring in multimedia journalism. The Afro's relationship with Morgan State dates back almost as far as the paper itself. Both the school and the press are incubators of black talent.
3: The way that my advisor speaks to me is like I can pretty much do anything. That's the way he speaks to me. And honestly, most of the time, that's exactly how I feel from the way he speaks to me. Like He has compared me. He said, we're trying to get you to be just like this New York Times reporter or this Washington Post reporter. And those people can often be white. But he's saying, I'm just trying to get you where they are. It doesn't matter what color they are. He's just trying to get me there. Give me all the steps so I can do exactly what they're doing.
0: Last June, veteran journalist Kamau Hai joined the AFRO, working as a reporter before quickly being promoted to managing editor. He believes the future of the paper is strong, in part because of its continued commitment to in-depth reporting on issues relevant to the Black community.
7: I mean, if you compare the staff of the Baltimore Sun to the AFRO, it's apples and oranges, they employ, conservatively, hundreds of people. We just... You know, you just can't compete with that, but that's like saying the Baltimore Sun doesn't compete with the Associated Press. They both do journalism, but the Associated Press does it on a way different scale than they do. But we like to think that in our community, our people, and things that are of our interest to our readers, that we are even better than the Sun. I like to think that we, uh, we like to keep a track on the many organizations that have sprung up in the wake of the events of last April after the death of Freddie Gray. And we, in addition to sort of talking about them and what those organizations are attempting to do, we try to keep an eye on them and to make sure that they are fulfilling the promises that they have made. And I don't think The Sun does nearly as good a job as we do. We
0: asked Kamal for a recent example of in-depth reporting that's distinct to the Afro. The story he told us harkened back to ones I'd read in long-archived editions of the paper, both searing and sensational, a story I wouldn't have found anywhere else.
7: I went out in the wake of the riots to do sort of a post-riot story of, you know, how our how are some of these businesses getting on? And it was, I believe, the day after. And I, I decided to go counterintuitively down to the Inner Harbor, while which was not nearly as as damaged, but suffered significant damage as well. And I was speaking with a owner of a pawn shop, whose the name of the pawn shop escapes me. Uh, and I said, "Well," and and I came across them. They were sort of doing repair work to the pawn shop. And I started talking to them. I said, "You know what happened? You know what what happened?" And uh, <laughs> he told me how. The, at the height of the riots, someone tried to break in and they, him and several people were there, and he picked up a machete uh, and then began hacking at the arm that was grasping, trying to make its way through the door. Uh, Blood spewed everywhere, and unsurprisingly, the arm retreated. And to prove this story to me, he then showed me the bloody machete. So I said, that's what's really real.
0: So much has changed over the course of the Afro's history. But even with the gains of black communities throughout history, have the original objectives of the black press changed? I think John Murphy III's answer to that question in 1971 is as accurate as any answer an Afro employee would give today.
1: The thrust has been basically the same. At one time, you thought maybe you were at the end of the road in protesting, but really, when you look at the broad thing, you were really no further ahead than you were, say, 50 years ago in degree.
0: John H. Murphy III said, At one time, you thought maybe you were at the end of the road in protesting, but really, when you look at the broad thing, you're really no further ahead than you were, say, 50 years ago in degree. You're still fighting for the same things, maybe with different people and from a different level. This program is produced by Stacia Brown and brought to you by WEAA 88.9 FM as part of Finding America, a national initiative produced by AIR with financial support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City's field production team includes Ali Post, Mavish Raza, and Marsha Jews. Theme music by Mark Gunnery for the Center for Emerging Media. For photos and video from the Afro and the people you just heard talking about it, visit riseofcharmcity.com or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Rise of Charm City. We'll return in two weeks with an episode about a first-of-its-kind museum in the heart of East Baltimore, the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum.